0: Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio.
1: Forbidden archaeology, forgotten history, divination, magic, cryptozoology, UFOs, nature, science, and spirit—all this and more, right here. On the Main Street Universe Radio Network.
2: So, you've done your time. Now what? Well, our guest tonight, Brandon Cosby, will let us know. He's Director of Development at OAR, which is Opportunities, Alternatives, and Resources. They deal with just that question. Tonight, right here on Main Street Universe. are listening to Main Street Universe, the show and network reminding you that the mysteries and possibilities of the universe are closer to Main Street than you may have ever imagined. to Main Street Universe, the flagship show, the one that started it all, with myself and Kevin Baird, and now, of course, with associate producer, Janice R. White. Welcome, Janice.
0: Ah, Hello, everybody. Glad to be back.
2: Absolutely, back from PSG, and I hope you had a lovely time there.
0: Yes, I did.
2: And I want to remind everybody that Main Street Universe is, in fact, now a network of, and still growing... Well, that didn't sound like much, did it? I usually have symbols to hit out in the studio, and I go (laughs) Um, seven shows, starting with this one. As I said before, the flagship show, the one that started it all, Main Street Universe, and that's Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Myself, associate producer Janice R. White, and every once in a great while, Brett Hillman calls back in and joins us, but that's been a while. And then on Thursdays at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, we have Renegade Wise Woman Radio with Queen Mother Imaku. It's her new time, her new show name. It's filled with all sorts of social awareness issues as well as original language prayers from the Kemetic tradition. And she teaches Kemetic yoga as well. So check that out. Then on Fridays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, we have Walking on the Sidewalk with our host, Mr. Kevin Baird. And Kevin is the creator of Frozen Smoke, which is an art form. He's an artist that creates vases, vases, however you say it. Uh, Portrait. Oh, absolutely. And he is also the creator of the Horizon Oracle, from which he reads and takes calls to do readings. He can be found at www.templeofgaia.com And then on Friday evenings, we have Activating Compassion in the Midnight Hour with your hostess, Miss Jessie Ann Nichols-George. She's the author of four books, Activating Compassion, Its Companion Workbook, and You Me Life Dreams and Its Companion Workbook. So check it out. She had New Age musician Steve Halpern on a little while back and a couple other fairly big-name guests, so uh, very excited about some of the new potential guests that I won't announced quite yet until they come through. So check that out, 12 at midnight. And then on Sundays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time is Darren Boucare with his show Spiritual Insight. Darren is a tarot and palm reader at Marie Lovos House of Voodoo in the magical city of
0: New Orleans, Louisiana.
2: So check him out. It's one of those world-famous sort of occult bookstores that he works at. Marie Laveau's, and his show is interesting, and he has a lot of personality and a great style. And then Monday evenings at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, we have Randy Goldberg with his show Science of Light. Randy is a Vedic Eastern astrologer as well as a Western astrologer, and Randy was once recommended as top five in the blog talk radio e-zine that you get if you're the main host to be one of the top five recommended supernatural or metaphysical shows so science of light 10 p.m then on 10 p.m eastern time on tuesday completing the circle for now is green magic green medicine with your hostess miss susan weed and she's been an author of many books about herbal medicine over the years check her out at the wise woman center and she really brings a unique perspective and there's things about her that people sometimes don't expect for example because she's so natural and all of this they expect that she's a vegetarian and she's not um she doesn't think that your diet should have and she talks about this a lot doesn't have to have a label just eat in balance <laughs> so anyway check it out it's a half hour education class about living naturally herbals medicine is people's medicine that makes up the shows on the main street universe radio network for now for now and tonight as you heard in my introduction i said so you've done your time and now what well our guest is Mr. Brandon Cosby. He's the Director of Development at AOR Opportunities, Alternatives, Resources. And welcome to Main Street Universe, Brandon. Thank you very much. I
3: appreciate the opportunity to be here. I'm excited to
2: tell you a little bit about who we are and what we do. All right, and I'm really glad to have you here too, because I saw you yes, speak. I, am. I saw you speak at you might want to let him have that for a minute. Yeah. I saw you speak at akatink unitarian church and i just thought you had great things to say and i felt definitely would be a great fit here at main street universe because part of our theme here besides some of the metaphysical stuff is one of our sayings here is make your own life and making your own life and definitely the people in that situation that's exactly what they have a very difficult time doing all of us do like if we have a dream and we're trying to aspire to this dream or like man i want to get out of this job i'm in But imagine trying to aspire to that dream when all you're trying to do is just, you know, have clothes, an apartment, whatever the case may be. So I guess our first question would be to you, what are some of the issues you face when people are first released from being incarcerated? I'd like to piggyback on that idea you were talking about,
3: the idea of the, the dreams that we have and how difficult they are to reach and to go after and to strive for each day. And there are moments in times where we make choices that have consequences for us and those around us, and when we wind up incarcerated, we start over. In that moment of, of incarceration, even a short period of incarceration, you lose a lot. You lose the opportunity to to have your 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 home, your apartment, your car, your possessions, your relationships. The relationships are really important, and they're critical to our success, and we lose those when we're incarcerated. So imagine the struggle that we all have to aspire towards our dreams, and something happens and you're incarcerated. You don't lose your dreams. You still have hopes that people that are incarcerated are people just like everybody else. They've made some bad choices, sometimes with, with tragic consequences, but they still have hopes they have dreams for the future. And When you walk out of incarceration, many people walk out of incarceration with nothing, and they start over. And for those that are serious about changing, they come to our office at OAR, and they tell us. I'm ready to change and I need some help because that change process is difficult. And that that's where we
2: begin the intervention process. That would bring me to what was my very first question. Not that I'm trying to visualize being in that situation too much. <laughs> I hope I never we never need your services <laughs> and that our listeners never need your services, but we're glad you're here. <laughs> but how would they how do they first find out about
3: you? <clears throat> There's a variety of ways, and so let me talk a little bit about the clients that we serve and just kind of define that population for a moment. Because we serve anybody that's connected to the criminal justice system, whether you're a first-time misdemeanor offender or a a violent felon offender, you are eligible for our assistance. And the, the individuals we serve, we help at a variety of entry points in the criminal justice system. So some people we help as they are coming before the court. Maybe it's a, a, a relatively young person, 18, 19, 20 years old. It's their first offense. They come before the court for a drunken public or a shoplifting charge. Maybe it's a college student with a shoplifting charge, and it's their first charge. We have a relationship with the court in Fairfax County so that we can divert them away from incarceration, away from a conviction. They come to our office, we assign them to community service, we'll put them in educational classes, give them an opportunity to give back to the community through community service rather than take from the community through incarceration, those costs. And that's an opportunity to move somebody that's getting close to a dangerous situation that that can truly impact your life for a lifetime, move them away from that and and back into productive roles. So we serve a a variety when you're saying, how do clients hear of us? It depends on where they come from. So somebody may learn of us for the first time when the uh, judge looks at them and says, would you be interested in a program with OAR? Uh, If they're detained in the local detention center, We've got a great relationship with the sheriff's office. We provide a wealth of services inside that facility, skills classes, anger management, life skills, something called impact of crime that I hope we get to talk about a little bit. All of those designed to build the skills and and challenge the beliefs that led to incarceration in the first place. So when they're in the jail, there's a good network of communication. They know who we are, they can find us, and they can seek out our services. And then post-release, if someone has been incarcerated, whether it was in a local jail or a state prison somewhere, if they're returning to the area where our service area, which is typically Fairfax, Prince William, and Loudoun counties, if they're returning to that area, they're eligible for services. And what we found recently when talking about how do people find us, with the recent economic downturn, the ex offender still struggles to get a job. It's hard for a lot of us to get a job. If, if you've right. got something on your record, it, you're it's at the bottom hard. of the pile. It's right. Even more So we have individuals coming to us now that have been out of incarceration for five, ten, sometimes even more years than that, but because that's still on their record, they were the first ones let go when the recession hit and they're still struggling to find employment. So post-release people find us by seeking out our services, obviously our website, our relationship with some of the criminal justice community, probation and parole, uh, the court system, and, and those that are
2: experiencing these difficulties seem to be able to identify us and seek out services. And you mentioned the difficulty getting a job. That reminds me, and I don't want to get off track a little bit, but I just thought it was an interesting point that uh, I guess you've heard or not, Or is one person went another direction. Now, this was not locally, I don't believe, but talking about how difficult it was to get inmates' jobs after their release, and he was just plain out saying he thought it was so difficult and he was somebody that was a, that had a little bit of money. I, gosh, I wish I could remember his name now. Um, but I, this just came to my brain now. But I think it's a great point. He got to the point where he was just encouraging him to open small businesses, and he was showing them how to do it because he was a very entrepreneurial guy. One of them, he said, for a small loan, you can start a janitorial business. Now, you probably, for certain types of crimes... There are probably certain buildings you couldn't go in, right? But, I mean, that's just one idea, but but there was many of these, like, here's how to start, and this guy was very entrepreneurial, but he did something and got himself in trouble, and he started this program, not to sidetrack too much, but I think that's an interesting approach is, is there a way to, you know, help people discover an entrepreneurial path where the record doesn't have to be looked up or or, or something like that to stop you?
3: Uh, a lot of the clients that we work with will go that route because many other doors are shut to them. And, and But when they're serious, when they're ready for change, when they realize, you know, I, I can't keep making these same choices and suffering these same consequences, I've got to do something different. Mm-hmm. At that moment, it drives a lot of innovation, and, and they'll seek out those opportunities. Yeah. This, this is a tricky area. You mentioned janitorial uh, right. specifically many of the government buildings and government contracts around here require background checks. Right. So that, you know, if you were in Atlanta or, or Charleston or something like that, you, you might have the opportunity, some greater opportunity.
2: Or if you owned it, but say you had two employees with a clean record, you know, that's just another thing. They say they will go into the building. <laughs> you know.
0: They
2: are, yeah, yeah.
3: And, and even when that, when they're not ready to do that, A lot of times, the employment comes through small businesses, uh, family-owned businesses, where they can go in, meet somebody individually, individually, shake their hand and say, you know, man-to-man, I need a job. Will you give me a chance? And what many of our employers have found, the employers that work with us that hire the clients we serve, they find that this is a very loyal population because they've been told no over and over and over again. When an employer finally says, I'll give you a chance. That they're loyal to that employer and they want to demonstrate to them that they can do this job and they'll do this job well and earn that respect and, and earn that opportunity that they've been given. Right.
2: That's a very good point because they, they know how, how difficult it is for anyone out there, but even in their situation, they know and feel like, okay, I'm really I better make this, you know, work and I better make this happen. And from there, I guess, maybe we'll discuss some of the options and services that you provide. Eventually, I want to get down to the impact. I don't want to start right off with that yet. <laughs> and I wanted to get to, uh, Yeah, I think you already breezed over one. You talked about the college student in trouble for shoplifting. And so you, 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 you actually have like an alternative sentencing program. And maybe if you could just speak a, a little more about that.
3: Certainly. Then- What this program is designed for is the first-time misdemeanor offender. It's that person that is just beginning to step into a situation that that will not be good and will have consequences for their future. So what we try to do with that alternative sentencing program is give them an option, allow them to demonstrate accountability for their actions and choices, and then be able to step beyond the criminal justice system. And what what this does for the person that's successful is they enter what's referred to as a deferred uh, uh, guilty plea, So when they stand before the judge, they say they're guilty, but they enter the program. If they do all of their hours, if they pay their court costs and court fines, if they attend the educational classes, and they return to court on the day that the judge says to come back, at that moment, their their charges are dismissed. So from that point forward, any time they go to fill out a job application that says, have you been convicted, they can say no. That arrest still shows up for some background checks. but. For 90% of the employment opportunities out there, they can say that they have no conviction, that's an accurate, honest statement, and it doesn't have to be stapled to every resume for the rest of their life. So that's the important part of that alternative sentencing program.
0: That works. Uh, yeah. Right. I like that. Um, I'm looking through your jail program. I see Responsible father Fatherhood Workshop. Right. So your population is mostly male?
3: Yes. Um, if we look specifically at the population in the, in the Fairfax County Jail, there's approximately 1,300 people in the jail at any given on any given day. Um, without uh, looking at the specific count, I'm going to guess 900 to 1,000 of them are men. Uh, so, predominantly male population inside the jail. Uh, the services that we provide post-release to clients, we provide a, a larger percentage of indiv- uh, services to females. Uh, than, than the percentages in the jail, but still predominantly male uh, male clients. I would say 70-30, something like that. You mentioned fatherhood. I'd, I'd love to be able to talk about one of the programs, one of the very compelling programs that we run inside the jail called Impact of Crime. Okay. One of the important things to, that, that I think describes our programs or is important about our program is that we really try to do two things. We've got to build skills so that when somebody walks out of incarceration, they're better prepared to re-enter the community. Maybe that's a computer class, maybe it's life skills, maybe it's budgeting and financial planning, so we're gonna run classes like that inside the jail to build skills. And those skills are critical for their future success. But there's another piece of it that's often overlooked. Skills all alone won't change the individual. More often than not, you can identify some common characteristics, we refer to them as criminogenic beliefs, and these are common beliefs that many individuals that wind up incarcerated hold, and it's important through our programs that we begin to challenge some of those criminogenic beliefs. If you don't change that, when you walk out you can have more skills, but you think the same way and you revert back to the same behaviors. So I I would love, if I have just a moment, I'd love to tell a story that came out of a classroom. I was trying to talk about the idea of accountability. This was a women's group, and there's this woman in the back of the class in her Fairfax County-issued green jumpsuit, and she's looking at me as if I have lost my mind. So I invite her to share her thoughts with me. And she looks at me, and she says, man, you don't get it. It was a bag and a spoon. That's all it was. If I was in D.C., I would have gone home that night. But because I'm in Fairfax, I've got six months to do. Now, what that story tells us right away is that this is somebody that's not taking accountability for their behavior. It's Fairfax's fault, not their fault. So sometimes what we have to do is change their perspective, get them to be, able to, to, to be able to see something differently. So in this particular case, I asked this woman just a couple questions. And the first question I asked her was, you know, what was in that bag maybe 20 minutes or 30 minutes earlier? We started talking about heroin. I asked her where she got that heroin. We talked about buying it from a dealer in a community where people live, where children play, where, where people work and, and families congregate. So then I asked her, you know, how long have you been using heroin? And we started talking about a good number of years. So I also asked her, you know, where did you get the money to support that habit? And we started to talk about all kinds of nasty stuff from credit card theft and fraud and prostitution and a whole bunch of things that go into supporting that habit. Now, this is an example of what we try to do and where I believe our success comes from. If all you do is build skills, you send somebody out with the same attitudes and beliefs that they came in with. Mm-hmm. But for this young lady, what we were able to do is instead of seeing an empty bag and a spoon, which if you look at that, I haven't heard anybody. It's no big deal, and it's Fairfax's fault. But if you see a five-year heroin habit and every bad choice you've ever made to support that habit, now all of a sudden you've taken ownership and you've got to demonstrate accountability for a much bigger issue than an empty bag and a spoon. But if you close your eyes and narrow your vision, that's all you see, there's nothing to change. But when you can change that vision, you begin to challenge them to see things differently, that's the starting point that changes those beliefs, puts them in a different place. So when they walk out, they say, you know what, I don't have this right. This wasn't an empty bag and a spoon. This was a lot of bad decisions. I didn't get busted for every one of them, but I was involved in every one of them, and I don't have the right to make those choices anymore. And that's where change begins. So when we start talking about our programs in the jail and in the, even the programs we do post-release, that's the important piece of it, not just the skills. But we got to get into that person and figure out, you know, what, how do you view the world that allows you or prompted you to make certain choices? And when we can begin to change that piece underneath the surface, it begins to change the actions that they have as they
2: enter the community. Yeah. Very good point, because it's not good. about what you think about Say the war on drugs. I'm personally, I'm I'm for ending the prohibition, but that's not really the point here. Right. The point is, this is the reality that X, Y, or Z person lives in, and this is what's going to happen if this behavior continues. And now, being the, her first one into six months, I think that was a little harsh for a bag and a spoon too. But my, but my whole point is, but what's going to happen the next six months when you're when you're out there? Are you going to keep doing the, the, the petty theft, the credit card fraud?
3: So, so we can have a legitimate discussion about legalization right, as right. an example. But that's not that what doesn't mean. change the issue, and the issue is it's not legal. You're making these choices. And not only that, because what, what, what's important to recognize is that not just the offenders we work with, but people in general, I think we do a poor job of taking accountability for our actions. I think we often just take accountability for what we get caught for. But sometimes we do some stuff and we never get caught, and we never really take accountability for those things, and the offender does the same thing. So more often than not, you might do 50 things in the community, you get arrested for three of them, you get charged for two, you know, and then you plead guilty to one of them, and that's plea bargain down. So then people will be in the jail, and the, you know, in the courthouse there's a stamp with a piece of paper that says assault and battery, or possession with intent, or whatever it is, and they'll say, yeah, I'm accountable for that. But that's just a small fraction of what they're really engaged in and we can pull back and begin to take accountability
2: for all of those pieces, that's where change really begins. And that's good. And what we're going to do, because we're about to the half hour, so we'll take a brief break. And I told you we'd go by quicker than you. <laughs> like when you first got here, there was almost a feeling like, yeah, I hope we can you know, kill this. I'm sure we'll have easy time going through this hour. Um, and when we come back, we want to cha- I want to change the focus a little bit and then end on some positives and then end on some good results. I want to, we want to talk a little bit about violence, mental patterns of violence, uh, domestic violence, because a, a lot of what people are locked up for is domestic violence. It's like DUIs, minor drug charges, and domestic violence is what I've heard are like three things that just fill the jails. So I think that's a very important one to cover is domestic violence. So we'll talk a little bit about that or to that conversation. But When we come back, right here on Main Street Universe. I'm going to go ahead and play another song here. And this one will be from our good friend, this time Tom Keithley, who has before, now check this gig out. He's been a drummer for the federal government, going around the world telling people about hand drums. Now, there's a lot of musicians that would love to sign up for that gig. (laughs) I don't think it's a full time thing he does, but he he was doing it for a while. That's got to be pretty cool. (laughs) Anyway, here we go. Nights over Baghdad, speaking of traveling around the world. Tom Teasley. We are back. Welcome back to Main Street Universe with our guest, Mr. Brandon Cosby from OAR Opportunities, Alternatives, and Resources. And glad to have you here, Brandon. Thank you. I genuinely appreciate the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I first saw him speak. I think I mentioned earlier. I don't know if I mentioned it on the air, but anyway, it was at Acutane Unitarian Church. As those of you know, listening, my brother is Reverend Scott Samuel Michael. I as well live with him and his wife. I rent a basement apartment. So I live with two Unitarian ministers. So I'm going to write a book. (laughs) No, just kidding. (laughs) That's what I tell them when they're arguing. I said I'm writing a book. This is all going in a book. (laughs) So now I want to talk about cases that come in, either new or old or repeat, of domestic violence and talking about the the mentality or the emotionality behind domestic violence and and how you try to handle that in, in your programs at OAR. I'll turn these drums down. The most important
3: thing to recognize is that domestic violence is, is a very different animal from just assault or other types of, of crime. There's a uniqueness to the relationship because of the domestic relationship. So let's just think of it in traditional terms for a moment for, for simplicity here a man, a woman, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife, something along those lines. And what happens in a domestic relationship is one individual in that relationship, for whatever reason or another, believes that they have the right to maintain power and control over their partner, and they'll use a variety of forms of violence to get that control. It's not always physical violence. More often than not, the physical violence comes in bits and pieces or, you know, times. Maybe there's several months in between episodes of physical
2: violence oh, he's uh, not, yeah, not going to yeah, do that it's again, he's, just, day, it's he's difficult, kind of he's, he's, he's having a hard time at work, yeah. uh, boy, that boss is making him do this because he's getting on him and all that kind of stuff. So you, you've brought up the classic cycle of
3: violence where we start on the honeymoon everything is fine, we get into that tension stage where other forms of violence are taking place, some name-calling, some put-downs, some humiliation, some ugly stuff is happening, then we get to that first incident of physical violence, that strike zone, where, let's say just in the traditional case, the female is hit. Then we get into that, and the female maybe say, well, he didn't mean it. That's fine. And what's interesting, when we work with the perpetrators of domestic violence, we always go through that cycle with them, and after we get to that first instance of physical violence, we ask them, we say, "And what's the next thing that happens? And almost in unison, everybody around the table says, I'm sorry, baby. It'll never happen after again. Yeah. But one of the things that we point out in our group is while they may say that, there's something they often believe inside that they do not vocalize. And what that is, is they say, I'm sorry, baby, it'll never happen again. But inside, they're really thinking, but it was your fault. If only you would change. Absolutely. If you would change, I wouldn't have to do this to you. And that's a big part of what we try to do. We talked earlier about changing beliefs. And that's one of the things that we've got to do in that domestic violence class is to recognize that they own their violence, that they're responsible for it that nobody else owned it, they chose it, it was a deliberate choice, it sometimes happens in a context, and that context is important, but ultimately they own it, they're responsible for it, they've got to find something different, and they can't expect her to change. They've got to initiate the fact that if I, want to, if I don't want to have the consequences of violence, I've got to find a way to do something different. And when they first capture that moment, they're usually at the point where you know, they, they ask us to stop the incident of violence. So they don't want to change anything else in their life just when I raise my it's right here that's when you know give me something to make sure I can put it back in my pocket and what we try to do is make sure if you wait for that moment you've already failed mm-hmm. we've got to go back we got to look at the very belief that's underneath the surface so maybe they believe I have the right to control my partner and as soon as you pull that I, I think a belief says like roots on a tree yes. you know they're buried they're underneath you don't see them. they're critical to that tree's survival but if you can pull them out and look at them and if you really believe, I have the right to control my partner, you pull out and look at do you? Do you have that right? Does that make any sense? Should you operate? Should your actions match that belief, or do we challenge that belief? And we change that belief to something else. So Instead of, I have the right to control my partner, we each make our own choices. We each make our own choices. And now all of a sudden, if that's the belief you're operating from, your actions become very different. Easier said than done, but that's, that's just a snapshot of of what we try to do specifically to address domestic violence, because it is a significant issue. In Fairfax County, we probably have uh, almost 200 people to come through our 18-week domestic violence program on any given year.
2: Mm -hmm. And it reminds me, I'm taking this into a slight direction, talking about the same thing, though. Some people think, and I actually disagree with this. It's okay if you disagree with me. (laughs) But some people think that this is like a genetic thing, I really think it's a learned behavior that they've either been controlled or dominated in some way. Now they have actually found what they think is a violent gene, but they say that gene can exist in any person, and it's only activated if they, it's put upon them, especially in childhood. Especially in childhood, uh, and then all of a sudden they're like, "Oh, this is how you get what you want. You know, this is this you control." And like you say, so many people have to remember it's about control first. We are all obviously
3: wired differently and and Mm -hmm. some people just react to things more quickly than others this is that classic nurture versus nature argument argument however most perpetrators of domestic violence experience violence as a child they either saw it or witnessed it or had violence perpetrated against them so there is without a doubt a component of this that says you know what you have experienced influences your behaviors and this is this is something one quick thing that i just want to share because Nobody, this is it's kind of a silly joke, but nobody that I've ever worked with that's a domestic violence, violence perpetrator comes in the group and says, you know what, my dad used to, used to beat up my mom and you know, I couldn't wait to get a girlfriend so I could beat her up too. No, nobody does that. Every one of them says, I'm not going to be like dad. I'm not going to do it. But what they have seen and what they've learned is, you don't like what's happening. You get what you want by using violence. So they tell themselves, I'm not going to be violent, and they try to eliminate the physical piece, but they still use all the other emotional tools of violence, the put-downs, the threats, the get-in-the-face, the, tit- you know, the teeth gritting, and the spit flying, all this kind of stuff. And then when they finally hit, they say, you know, I said I'd never be like my father. But that's what they've learned, and that's what they've known, and it's the only tool they have. So it really is, you take somebody like that and you put them in jail, you can leave them in jail for the rest of their life. They're not going to learn anything differently. Learn anything so we've got to do something that begins to change the way they think about things and they respond to things. And then that way they can have a genuine, honest relationship with someone.
0: And I also feel um, on the victim standpoint uh, that if a, uh, especially a girl uh, girl sees her father, hit her mother, she won't be like, oh, I want a boyfriend that's going to hit me around or I'm not going to do that, but they also have the same type of um, gene pool, but this time is to be the victim um, instead of being the perpetrator, if you understand what I'm saying. Yes. Uh,
3: I'm I'm going to take it out of the gene pool thing and just put it into the beliefs realm. Because if you've been told you're stupid, you're no good, you're worthless, you're all these kind of things, that impacts who you are and how you feel about yourself. Now, there's a magic thing that happens between the typical perpetrator of domestic violence and the typical victim. They just come together like magnets. Because imagine for a moment that I'm an abuser, and you've been abused. You're vulnerable, you've been told you're no good, and my first role as an abuser is, I want total power over you. So when we first come together, I love you, baby. This is great. You don't need anybody. Don't worry about your family. Nobody. I'm going to take care of you. So, so that that yeah. victim is vulnerable. They fall into those arms, and what feels at first like a nice hug becomes a very restrictive, mm-hmm. controlling embrace yeah. that just, it, it just that, yeah, it, it <laughs> takes away all of their power. So they, you're right. The the person inclined to be a victim and the person inclined to be an abuser just seem to find themselves unfortunately way too easily yeah. for somebody that that had never experienced that victimization. And they get into a relationship with an abuser, and that abuser says, well, don't worry about your family, and I got you, and I love you. Don't worry about anybody. You'd be stepping back
0: saying,
3: well, you know, I want this relationship, but the relationship... I have friends, I exactly. have family, you know. And you'd likely step away from that, and yeah. you wouldn't get engaged with that person. So, yeah, the the way those two entities come together really is amazing at times. That
2: reminds me of a story, of course, no names mentioned, uh, long ago, actually, on the construction site. And I heard one guy say, and he, now he was... He was totally disagreeing with this he he was talking about a cousin of his and he's like my cousin got mad at his girlfriend for putting a picture of her father on the table on like one of the main display tables he's like get that picture of that man out of here she's like it's my father and they got into a big fight about it i mean how control it that is that's just plain crazy you can't have a picture of your dad,
3: but you know what I mean? One of the beliefs that we, that we find in the domestic violence perpetrators is the idea that they hold on to this thing that says we must all comply with the same code of behavior. And if I believe that, I probably believe that my code is the one that's right. Mm-hmm. So you've got to comply with my code of behavior. What I would do is what you should do. And if you don't do what I do, I get upset, I get pissed off, and all of a sudden I start exerting some controlling behavior to try to make sure that you're going to do what I want you to do.
2: Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Let's also take that into the direction of – you mentioned, and I thought it was a very good point, it's not always about physically hitting someone. And it's about control, it's about all these other things. Now I'm just curious, have you seen – because I wonder about this because it's so programmed and I think a lot of people listening would wonder. The other things I can see a higher success rate, okay, somebody quits a drug, somebody stops living the life of a dealer, it, What what is like the success rate of some of these programs involving domestic violence in, in that kind of, you know, long-time program, I'm wondering, or, or that you've maybe personally seen, just a few personal stories maybe, or, or something like that? It's an important question. It is, as you've alluded to,
3: a difficult, timely, and costly thing to measure. So some of the programs that we run, we have very good uh, outcome data on. So, our employment uh, uh, program, for example, will follow people for 12 months, try to make sure or, or determine if they've been able to maintain employment for 12 months. And we see good results there. The domestic violence program, we just recently received a small community grant to pull background checks 12 months after uh, people are completing. So starting in May, that's when people are going to be hitting their 12-month mark, and we're going to be doing those background checks. So I'd love to be able to give you that data. Some of that is on our website for those listening that are interested. You can always go to www.oarfairfax.com, and some of that information is there. Um, But uh, it it is a challenge to measure. It's really some of what we get is anecdotal. Uh, You can see dramatic change. One of the things that we always do is open up the doors to the people that support us or are interested in us. So if there are communities out there, community members out there interested and want to know is what we're doing, does this make any sense, is it a value, our doors are open. Give us a call, contact me, let me know. We'd love to have you sit in on a, a, one of the domestic violence groups. Uh, see what we do in there. Feel for yourself what happens in that room when somebody gets it, when that light bulb goes off. Uh, so we believe strongly in our programs and the value of them, but they are difficult to measure. Some we have better data on than others
0: Now are you having um I have your list of classes and events the uh violence intervention program do you have both the husband and wife, boyfriend, and girlfriend, or just the person involved with the in incarceration?
3: Right now, we only offer groups for men, for males that uh, have uh, issues of violence in their past. We do not bring the partners into that group. Um, For a lot of the men, they haven't reached the level of accountability. Hopefully, towards the end of the 18 weeks, they're starting to take accountability and they're moving forward. But on day one, we get a lot of people in there saying, well, I don't know why I'm here, and she should be here, and it's her fault, and I didn't do anything, and, and there's a lot of denial of responsibility. So we think it's unfair to put the victim in that position. However, we have great uh, communication with the victim. We want to keep them safe. So we will send them, when somebody comes to our office and they sign up, we send information to the victim. That this person is enrolled, they're expecting to start this day, we'll send them information about community services where they can get support. When we put together monthly reports, it shows whether the person is engaged or not, we send that to the victim. When we have a final report, we'll send that to the victim, and many will engage with us and, and they'll call us and, and they'll say, you know, things have gotten better, but last night he got a little out of hand you know, I was a little worried, he, you know, he, was, he got in my face and was screaming. I mean, those are, that's information that we can use in the group to then hold the, the person accountable. Sometimes the victim will want to keep that confidential, which is understandable because of their own fear, and we will absolutely honor that confidentiality. But the relationship with the victim is very important.
2: I thought that was a very important question because you mentioned. So there is a new thing in place to where to do some sort of an audit of what's going on now uh, after of, of of 12 months after as you said now so there's a new thing doing that because i've definitely seen in my life like i've known people that have been gangsters and that have done all of this and so much of this was based on just the situation they were around and then eventually they, they matured they got away with it i know a ton of people that used to live like that that in, in the construction world where I work, that they don't live like that now, and they haven't for 10, 15 years. And that's why I was wondering about this domestic stuff, because it's a little bit a different type of programming than you went to sell drugs because y- your mom's at home, and she's on heroin, and nobody was paying rent. Yeah, that's a little bit of a difference. Uh, yeah. And my brother saw that a lot when he was a teacher in the inner city, too. You I know, mean, If he was here, he would tell you, believe me, all about it some of these behaviors you do age out of uh, and and you you get a little maturity, a little brain
3: development, whatever and and, and and you you move beyond that. However, if if you get into too much trouble too quickly your options close so you may age out of it you may not want to live that lifestyle anymore but you feel like you don't have any choices because employment doors are closing on you've you got a long rap sheet you've burned a lot of bridges you don't have any family member that'll support you anymore and in that position people find that they may genuinely want to change but they don't have the resources they don't have the ability resources being money relationships all of those things and that's why we'll have somebody come to our office 37 years old or whatever age it is and says, it's time, i got to do something, I I can't keep doing this and I need your help, because that change is difficult. They're sincere and they're committed to it, but doing it on their own is difficult, and that's why, as our name states, we offer those opportunities, the alternatives and the resources necessary to just push them a little bit so that they can reach self-sufficiency and do something differently.
0: So so let's get
2: into some of the physical things you might help them with, Uh, things like, Now, we mentioned a little bit work and how difficult that is. What about other things? Because I think you do, like, clothes as well and some other things like that, so maybe you can elaborate on that. Absolutely, and I'll I'll talk about some of the
3: things that, that we help them with and the ways that the community can help us through that process. Um, so, the most important thing to think about is many people walk out of incarceration with no possessions whatsoever. Our office is literally a block and a half from the jail. Sometimes people will be arrested in June in shorts and flip flops. They're released in December and they walk to our office in the middle of December in shorts and flip flops, and that's all they've got. Uh, so, jackets in wintertime, clothing for interviews. New uh, shoes, uh, hygiene uh, products. We, we put together little baggies of you know, soap and toothbrush and all of these things. Uh, all of those are listed on our website, the, the types of things that we can use, the types of donations we can use, and we really are dependent upon the community for those types of donations. They're tax-deductible. We can, we can make sure you have the documentation of that, but the community is great in providing those types of things for us. Other types of, of things along those lines, Gift cards, uh, community members have donated, you know, $5 McDonald's gift cards. It, it's for us that our self-sufficient to be able to pick up a handful of gift cards, you know, isn't going to break our wallet, but that's very meaningful to somebody coming out of incarceration that doesn't have the resources for their next meal that we can give to them when they're getting on a bus to go to a shelter or, or you know, go back to mom's house or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, transportation is a real challenge. One of the big issues that happens when if if you go through the criminal justice system And you have fines and court costs and all these things if those aren't paid What they do is pull your driver's license as a prompt to get you to pay Uh, If you don't have the resources now you've got the fines and you don't have a driver's license And it's real tough in this area to get around without good uh, Transportation the public transportation is very limited once you you know reach the the outskirts of of the city Uh, so Metro cards, those smart trip cards a lot sometimes people will come and they 'll bring family and they'll get some cards, and there's a buck thirty on them and they're just sitting in their wallet. Those are wonderful donations because those smart trip cards cost five dollars a pop empty uh, so those are great donations to, to to send to our office so that we can help clients with those and
2: I also want to talk about what you think and how you think a program like this has a positive impact on the community versus just the plain, you know, incarceration and forget about them kind of model. And because especially you got to remember, in a large part, we're t- sometimes we're talking about pretty minor offenses. Some of us, maybe a quarter of our listeners have done, <laughs> or, or or people, whatever, the kinds of things lots of people have done, you know, uh, had a few drinks and got on the road, or, or, or they got busted for minor crimes. But, hey, if you get six, seven months from that, and you're not paying rent, and you can't get your apartment, and then maybe your car's repossessed. I mean, and then you have just like you said, the fines. You can't get your license back. The car's impounded. Uh, you have an
0: uh,
2: apartment. Um, you, you know, your girlfriend left, or whatever. Whatever else happened, your support system gets got sick of dealing with you getting arrested a couple times, even though they might it might have been all minor things, which I think some people forget that. And uh, so. I'd, I'd like to address a couple ideas yeah, there. Um, one,
3: most importantly, 95% of people incarcerated are returning to the community. Very few people are incarcerated for life. So some are serious crimes and are incarcerated for a long time. Right. But we have in the United States 5% of the world's population, but we incarcerate 25% of the incarcerated right. people. So we, we had disproportionately incarcerate a lot of people. More than any other country that has ever existed.
0: More. more, yeah. more
3: clearly more. more. So it's, it's obvious not everybody we incarcerate is a crazy, violent psychopath. Uh, there's a handful of them, and for those individuals, incarceration may be the best thing for the rest of us. But the vast majority, as you say, have made some choices that are bad, that have negative consequences for themselves and for those around them and for their families. But at some point, they deserve the opportunity to come back to the community and have the chance to reintegrate and be successful and demonstrate an, an opportunity to earn our trust again. And when those individuals are coming out, those are the individuals we've got to be prepared to serve. Because as you say, they're just not ev- not everybody's a monster that's incarcerated. There may be some, but most
2: people are not. And when they come out, those are the ones we, we've got to help. And because I remember this, and because you never know, because even for me, you know, I'm a pretty liberal guy, but we still have our, hmm, I wonder about this guy that's, you know, that this wandering homeless guy, and you wonder about sometimes what they did or how they got there, or is he some sort of, did he do something really bad? or You know, I mean, those things happen. We have our natural prejudices. I mean, and I was sitting out in front of the library, and I was actually waiting for the rest of the, we, there was a Pagan Pride Day fair meeting, <laughs> and we were having this meeting uh, for this fair, and my band's playing at it. And there was this young homeless guy out there, and I'm not lying, this is like, just caught me by surprise, it was in the middle of the afternoon, and he just looked like he'd been homeless for a while. Now, this is out in front of Fairfax County Library, but people don't realize there's still there's still a lot of homeless people around here. There's, and There's a
0: lot more than you think. There's a lot more than you
2: think, and I could tell he was homeless, you know, they got the big army bag, and the, you know what I mean, and they just, and he just literally just started crying right out in the front, and I just remember thinking, man, I wonder what that guy's story is. I mean, he was like, I mean, he was just, his head were in his hands, and he was just You could just see tears were just pouring down. He wasn't like bawling like loud, but you could just see it, you know, and he was just he couldn't contain himself. He just felt like hopeless or 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 condemned or or something. You know, somebody gets the label of offender or ex-offender.
3: It's it's a it's a terrible, ugly labor label. And and many of us in the community are prepared to just throw that person out and disregard them. But what your story shows is that they are people. They still have feelings, hopes, dreams, wishes, and they have people that are connected to others. There's a mom out there, a brother, a sister, somebody out there hoping and wishing for that day where that person can turn his life around. And it's important to see them compassionately as a person because it's too easy to dismiss them. They're an offender. Who cares? Lock them up. Throw away the yeah, key. I had
2: no idea what his history was. Right. I mean, he was about you looked at college age about. Actually, about like this guy's age. right there. <laughs> <laughs> Our engineer, Stefan, just walked in. Denise? <laughs> um,
0: I'm looking through your list here and anger management is towards the bottom. Um, I'm thinking that anger... Uh, Anger management is part of the problem.
3: Hmm? I'm I'm looking at your list as well, and I think okay. the impact of crime class. That's a very compelling class, and we haven't had a chance to talk about that one.
0: Yes. Um, so why don't we talk about both of them? Because cool. you know, if you have a certain amount of anger, it's going to be very hard for you to actually be aware of what you did or what you're presently doing and how it still impacts you on your life now. And do you have an impact of crime awareness that you want them to be responsible and accountable for their actions? So, can you tell a little bit about these classes? Yeah, anger management is the most the most important thing to
3: think of with anger management is most people think if you're going into an anger management class that anger is bad, anger is wrong. Anger just is. It is a feeling. It's not right, wrong, good or bad. It just exists. It just as happiness and sadness and whatever. It's just a feeling. What you do with that becomes very important, and some people respond very negatively with anger and they will respond with violence, threats, or abuse. Um, So, in that anger management class, what we try to do is normalize the idea of anger, but then we look at how does anger influence you as a person? What does it do to your thoughts? What does it do to your feelings? And ultimately, how does it affect your behavior? Because all of those things are linked together. And we'll do a lot of work on things like self-talk with individuals because when you get angry, if you start spinning stuff in your head that says this sucks and nobody's going to do it, they don't have the right to do this, now all of a sudden your behaviors are going to match those thoughts. Yeah. But if you can say, you know what, I can handle this, I don't, you know, I don't need to file the handle, the consequences aren't worth it, now your behaviors are going to match that. And, and we get people thinking about what's really important. Is the anger important or is going home tonight important? You don't want to sleep on a cot in the ADC again. And if we can focus on those things and we begin to change the way we think about things, then it changes the behavior. And we have much more power over our feelings than we usually recognize. They usually kind of sneak up on us and take over. The more we pay attention to them, the more we have the opportunity to manage that feeling in a productive way. So that's what we do with the anger management class. Really quickly with, with Impact oh, yes, of Crime, please, please. All right, since you mentioned that one, this is this is really a profound program. Anybody in the community that's interested, I'd love to invite into the jail and, and observe this class. What we do here is bring people in who have been the victims of crime, and we cover nine different topics. So maybe it's drugs or uh, assault or property crime or drunk driving, and we bring somebody in who's been the victim of that crime to tell the story. What jail does is an amazing thing. You put somebody behind these big concrete blocks, isolate them from the community, and their focus becomes on themselves. They start thinking about, when am I going home? My mattress has got a hole in it. This guy won't get off the telephone. You know, who, All about me. Some of those things are important, but if that's the exclusion of your thoughts, you never think about how your actions have impacted others. So we bring victims in to talk about, what was it like that day? What was it like the next day, a week later, a month later? When we do drunk driving, one of the women that comes in, I don't know how she does it, her daughter was hit by a drunk driver on the side of the road. She was walking on the side of the road, and a drunk driver hit her, threw her in the air, she landed on the car, smashed her the windshield, rolled off, vomited two or three times, and that was the end of her life. Now, people will tell you that drunk driving is not a violent crime. I don't think her mom will tell you that. That's a very, very violent act. And she comes in, and she shares that story with the people in the class. And she tells what it's like to get that phone call at 3 in the morning that you're not expecting, and what it's like to go through the court process as a mother, as a victim, and what it's like on the anniversary dates and Christmas and all the things that gets hard because of this. And those are things that the offender never has to think about. they thing well, you know, all I did was drink and drive and I got better, whatever.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: But now if we can change that perspective with this program, it forces them to think differently about their actions. And you've got to ask yourself, do I have that right? Do I have the right to deliberately make a choice to impair myself and get behind the wheel and potentially cause that harm? And that's where change happens, when you begin to look differently at the world around you. And impact or crime is, is especially profound in its ability to do that. The victim speakers, that's where the, that's where the importance is. Uh, they're volunteers. They come in and they share this story. And many of them find it a healing experience for themselves as well. One victim described it as me as they they just kind of carry around the weight of this victimization every time they come and speak. They get to leave a little bit of it behind and walk out. Like a deep impression or yeah, release,
2: yeah. just a little bit lighter each time. And um, one of our chat room members wanted to mention the other side. I know you briefly brushed over it, but wanted to mention the more common aspect. But the other side of domestic violence that's not as commonly talked about, and that's when the woman is the the aggressor, the female aggressor, I guess. And I'm curious about some of your experiences with that, or, or, or maybe is there a slightly psychological difference in that violence? I guess it's the there same. There are some
3: differences. The, 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 most importantly, the, the person that wrote in is absolutely right. There's, there's, there's really, in, in my estimation, three types of, of relationships where there's violence. There's, somebody has the upper hand. Mm-hmm. And either the man has the upper hand is using violence to control the woman, or sometimes it's the other way around, and the the female has the upper hand is using violence to control the man and I really believe sometimes nobody has the upper hand, and we just have two violent people coming together to beat the hell out of each other and it's a <laughs> it terrible awful relationship yeah. and so i I think that's a smaller percentage yeah. but i think I think there's a percentage of each of those that happen um so can females be violent absolutely sometimes they choose different behaviors. Um, Just as an example, if you think about a man that's violent and abusive and trying to control their partner, men do some some really ugly things. Hair pulling happens. I've talked to victims who have had clumps of hair ripped out of their head. One, it, it hurts terribly. But two, also, if I'm trying to control and put down somebody, Somebody, one of the things that gives them strength or value is their look and that they feel good about themselves. And, women and if hair I, and, and women, hey, hair. Hair. <laughs> guys with hairs, it starts to
2: say right. important. I, I got, it over, I got it over it. I just shaved so it. One way or another, <laughs> the abuser
3: will reach to the thing that's of value to that person. So, you know, the things that men and women value is different sometimes. So, sometimes women will attack different things. Women may attack a man's manhood, make right. him feel like less of a man still violent still abusive it's, a, it's an emotional force to say you know you're no good you're worth as you can you know right. whatever it, whatever it may look like so the the actions sometimes vary but ultimately it's the same thing one person that believes they have the right to dominate and control their partner and they use violence and force to do it so we have run women's group groups before we're not actively running a women's group uh but absolutely there are women out there that are abusive
0: well i know that um Orange is the New Black, which I know is a fictional um, fictional, fictional. um, show, but they do discuss sometimes very real issues on that show. And I don't know about Fairfax County per se, but I used to live in Baltimore, and they have a huge female population um, prison. In fact, actually, a couple female population prisons so I would think that the anger management um, is very important because sometimes when women are in jail, their families, their children, mm-hmm. uh, she's in jail, the husband or boyfriend may not be there, so the children are always going to go to their parents or maybe grandparents, and there's another cycle within that Um
3: The impact on children, the
0: impact of incarceration
2: on children, that might be another topic for another uh, session. Yes, we have about 35 seconds, yes, because it's not just the person locked up, but everybody can be locked up with them. But anyway, OAR, Mr. Brandon Cosby, thank you very much for joining us this evening. I
3: appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.
2: And at some point, you know, maybe we'll have you back if some particular issue comes up or something like that. So quick contact information for OAR. For those that are interested is www.oarfairfax.org.
3: Uh, if you'd like to reach out to us by email, it's info at And our direct phone, 703-246-3033. We'd love to have you get involved as a volunteer, as a donor. Uh, many opportunities to, if you believe in this mission, to support
2: it. Please reach out to us and we can walk through those opportunities. All right, thanks everybody for joining us. Thank
0: you, everybody.
2: A tiny bit over the time, but it'll be in the archives. Thanks for listening to Main Street Universe.
1: Forbidden archaeology. Forgotten history. Divination. Magic. Cryptozoology. UFOs. Nature, science, and spirit. All this and more, right here On the Main Street Universe Radio Network.
2: You are listening to Main Street Universe, the show and network reminding you that the mysteries and possibilities of the universe are closer to Main Street than you may have ever imagined.